0: So this evening we are concluding a section in Colossians where Paul has been teaching about how to live in marriage between husband and wife, how to live as parents, right, and children, and how to live in our work, how to live in our work. We have already looked at marriage, Uh, we've looked at parenting, and... So we've come to this section now, this final area. We want to look at the workers God wants us to be. And so look with me there at verse 22 of chapter 3 to verse 4 to 1. I'll read these verses again. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work utterly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The key truth Paul is teaching us from those verses is it's quite straightforward, really. If we summarize them, we summarize them like this. God wants us to worship Christ with our work. And he wants us to do it by focusing on the eternal glory we have in Christ. God wants us to worship Christ with our work by focusing on the eternal glory we have in Christ. That is, we might say, the big idea. That's the big truth of this passage. Now, I want us to learn this truth under two lessons. The first lesson is this. just comes from that truth I've just summarized. God wants us to worship Christ through our work. What is your work for? It is to worship Christ through it. Now, sometimes when I ask people what they do for a living, and I do that, so I try to just get a better sense of who they are, just to know them a bit more. And even as a pastor, to pray for them, right? You ask them, what are you up to these days? Uh, or what do you do for a living if I'm meeting them for the first time? Usually the answers I get is this. Oh, I, I am just a teacher, right? I am just a housewife. I am just a um, web designer. I am just a secretary. I am just a plumber. There is often that phrase, I am just, right? What are they implying by that? I think what they are saying to me is my work is secular. And it's really not a big deal at all. I wish I was doing something else, usually. I wish I had a better job. And in fact, what they mean usually is, I wish I had a divine calling. They are saying to me, Chola, you have a divine calling. They know if, when they, since they know I'm a pastor, they say, you have a divine calling, but the work I do is not like your work. I wish I was doing similar to what you're doing. I just, I am just. Right? My work is not as important as ministry. Pastors and missionaries are worth more to God than I am. I wish I could serve God more than just on Sundays or midweek. Now, I may be reading too much on that's just phrase, I am just. Uh, but sadly, that view that w- about work is, is, is all too common among believers. And it is utterly wrong. It is biblically wrong. God has given us our work, whatever our work is, whether it is our job, whether it is a work as in at school, we are students at school currently, or pe- perhaps you are a stay-at-home mom or dad. He has given us that work as a way for us to worship Christ through it. And that is the first thing really this passage is teaching us. And we just know in that truth, we'll see in a moment, changes everything. Look at verse 22 to 24. Paul says this, Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul is saying to all followers of Christ, who are slaves at Colossae, you must obey your slave masters in everything. In everything they command you to do, you must obey them. Yes, there are many things your master tells you to do that you don't like. It doesn't matter. If they order you to do something that is not sinful, you must do it. And you must obey them not simply as a performance for them to like you. It is not about it looking good on your CV. Or to get promoted to be the best slave in the household. No, says Paul, you must do it from a sincere heart, with a sincerity of heart. And it must be from the soul or from the inner man. In fact, that's what that phrase literally means, work heartily. It means work out of the soul. Your obedience must come from the heart that has been changed to see obedience to your slave master as a good thing in of itself. And when you obey them, your heart must agree with it. And of course, if your heart agrees with it, that affects the performance of your work, wouldn't it? It will be reflected in the quality of the work, the quantity of the work you're willing to do. Now, the question is, how can a human being, living as a slave, right, as a slave, see obedience to the slave master as a good thing in of itself? How is that possible? Well, the answer in this passage is that it it is possible because this is not about the slave master. You see, the Christian slave is ultimately no longer owned by the slave master, what is saying. When they became followers of Jesus, their ownership transferred, their slavery transferred from being owned by the human slave master, they are now owned by Christ. They have taken on a new slavery. They are now bond servants now to Christ. You see, the Christian slave has changed ownership. There's twenty-two to twenty-three. It says slaves, obeying everything; those who are your earthly masters or lords, according to the flesh. Literally, not by way of eye service as people us, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men. Paul is saying, on the surface, you're still owned by your human masters. But, but that is not your full reality. You are now owned by the Lord Jesus. You have a new master now. Christ owns your body and your soul. And Christ owns all your labor, all your work. So everything you do now is about Christ. Now, this doesn't mean you stop obeying because I'm owned by Christ now. Is my new slave master. Uh, that means I stop doing my work. No, no. Quite the opposite says Paul. You must now obey your slave masters because all the work you're doing now is owned by Christ. You must obey both the good and the bad slave masters as long as what they're telling you is not sinful. Obey them out of obedience for Christ. Whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing That means remembering that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You, in your slavery, are serving the Lord Christ. So the point Paul is making in these verses, you see, is is that the key to obey our earthly masters, he's telling the slaves, is to see our work as a means through which we worship our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Work is a means through which we worship Christ. Paul is in effect saying to the slaves, Worship Christ with your slavery. Christ is now your true master, so worship him by obeying your earthly masters. Now, we need to pause here. on. Paul is not condoning slavery. He's not saying that slavery is, is in of itself a good thing. But what Poe is doing is he's taking slavery as a fact of life in the city of Colosse, And then giving instruction in terms of how the believers who are slaves should live in that place. You, know, you need to remember that this time in the city of Colosse, slaves make up at least one third of the entire population. Slavery is the ash reality when Poe is writing. And Paul accepts this reality as an outworking of sin in the world. And his concern now, his urgent concern is not the abolition of slavery. That's not his top concern, right? His concern to these believers is with faithful living in the middle of a harsh reality. Paul sees, you see, the terror of slavery and all suffering even, right, as a dark providence, that God has allowed for his children to grow in their faithfulness to Christ. We might even say Paul sees it as a momentary gift. That's slavery. Not because slavery is good of itself. But in the same way that all suffering is in one sense a gift from God. Because it's an opportunity for us to grow in faithfulness to Christ. Paul he's saying, your new life with Christ has, you see, this is an amazing thing, your new life with Christ has turned the evil of slavery upside down. It has now become a privilege, a means through which you worship Christ through it. And Paul would say that with any suffering in our lives. Now, Paul does not stop there, that, that, isn't it? He also has a message for Christians that Colossae, like Philemon, who owned slaves like the famous Onesimus? Look at chapter four, verse one. What he says to slave masters, masters, treat your slaves justly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As I said, the masters in verse 1 of chapter 4 are earthly masters in chapter 3, verse 2. And that again literally means lords according to the flesh. That's to say these masters have total power over their slaves. But what Paul is saying in chapter 4, verse 1, he's saying to them, yes, you have total power, but you must curtail the exercise of your power over your slaves. You must treat them now with justice, with fairness. Don't do them wrong because they are not, don't do them wrong because they are not as powerful as you are, right? Don't treat them unfairly because they are now your property. Treat them with justice and fairness. Now, but you might ask yourself, like, <laughs> why should these people listen to Paul? Why is Paul meddling in their business relationship? I mean, by the way, as we've been going through the household court, it's amazing, isn't it? Poor, interferes everywhere. He's interfering in the home. He's interfering with parents. Now he's interfering in their business. As an apostle, he can speak with authority. But why is he zoning in on this? Why should these people be fair and just to slaves? And the answer, again, is in verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your slaves fairly, Knowing or we should say remembering that you also are the master in heaven, and what Paul is saying: Look, treat your slaves justly and fairly, because you are now under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not own your slaves anymore. If you're a Christian slave owner, Christ owns your slaves. When you turn to Christ, you handed over all your life, all your possession, including your slaves, to Christ. And Paul is saying to them, the way you manage your slaves is now part of how you worship Christ. It is part of how you serve Christ as you're managing them. All work is a means through which we worship Christ. And even that work, if that work is ownership, management, all of that is how we worship Christ through it. So, to both slaves and masters, the message of Paul is the same. There's harmony in this passage as we read it. The message of Paul is the same. God wants us to worship Christ with the way we do our work. That's the harmony in this passage. And this truth applies to us today. It applies to each and every person sat here this evening. Yes, we are far away from the slavery of the ancient world. But the lesson of this passage applies to us today. Whatever work you are doing in your life, whether at home, whether at a place of work, whether at the school, or whether it is ministry in this church, the point is the same. The point of your work, all work you do, is to worship Christ through it. It is to worship Christ through it. And in fact, as we think about that, we realize that what Paul is doing, you see, as we said at the beginning, uh, when we started looking at the household court, is, is that Paul is taking verse 17, which we looked at in chapter 3, and he's applying it now to all of these areas. He's applied it to marriage. He's applied it to parenting. And now he applies it to work, any work we do. He's saying the point of all our work is to worship Christ with it. Now, sadly, is, by the way, is that how you see your work? Is that how you see your work? My guess is many of us, that's not how we see our work. Sometimes we think about it that way, but for the rest of us, maybe we start on Monday thinking like that, but Tuesday comes in, tells the first. And we stop, we're not thinking like that. We're not always as conscious of this point as we should be. Maybe we think about it three or four times. Uh, and think of this work as a whole. And it's very interesting, you know, if you, if you are home, you're in a situation of your life where you have to stay at home, you think, when you ask them, are you working? I'm not working. Now, you are working. Because this applies to every work. Whether you stay at home at the moment, or whether you are behind the office desk. That's, that's a game changer. That's a game changer when we realize that. But my point is, this is not how we think about it usually. We have been influenced by the world, which tends to treat our jobs, you see. The world treats our job as a necessary evil (laughs) to get us leisure. I I don't remember everything I, I studied at university. I can't tell you. First year I did this, second year I did the third year I did it. Most of the time, I remember ideas, but I've pretty much forgotten the detail. But there's one thing I remember very well from my first year economics class. It was a labor economics class, a module in labor economics. And the lecturer stood up and said, look, I'm going to teach you today about why we work. And my hero was like, okay, what's that? And then he said this, why do we work? We work to buy leisure. We work to buy leisure. What we should be doing is resting. Like Wali E. The film. Right? That's the idea. That's the ideal. We rest. Yeah? Do all kinds of things. But, we, but sadly, for us to, to have holidays and do all sorts of things, we must work to fund the holidays. Work is not what we want to do. We want to do leisure, have fun, be with our friends. But we can't do that without working. Because work brings us money. Right? So, economic models tell us, or in fact, most economic models are built on that principle. Work is necessary evil to bring us to buy labor, to buy leisure, sorry. And I just want to say to you that this idea actually is not just for academics, it has influenced the way we, even as Christians swimming in this culture, think about work. Ideas that come out of investing influence us without realizing. And that's why it's important for us to know how, what our children are being taught. Right? Because I can tell you this idea doesn't just underpin our economic models. This idea actually defines how ordinary people live. We see the biggest value of work is to buy us more holidays and to buy us many toys. Right? But the Bible is saying here, it's saying to me, when I read this, I said, Chola, you wasted time studying labor economics. It is wisdom made foolish by God. God has work, has value, the Bible is telling us, because it is a means through which we worship God. That's His value. Now, that should not surprise us, isn't it? Because even before sin entered the world, Adam worked in the garden. Yeah, he was put in the garden to work. And therefore, Adam worshipped God through his work. Work was there before the fall. Sin, when sin entered the world, it made work harder. Sin didn't introduce work, God did. Sin made our work harder. You know, through thistles and thorns, right? But the principle of work remains the same. We are meant to treat work as a privilege to worship Christ through it. And this is the first point Paul wants us to really understand here. The word is the means through which we worship Christ. It's a, it's a privilege. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe what I've just said? Are you living out what I've just said? I think we are not. Imagine if you truly believe this truth, though. It would change the way you work, wouldn't it? Remembering that the point of your work is to worship Christ through it will help us not to be discouraged when our work is difficult, when it's boring, or it's not being appreciated. Whatever work we do, mothers, this changes everything. The work you're doing at home, that work, is not always going to be appreciated. It's hard, it's difficult, but this transforms it. You can have joy in that because that difficult work at home, you're doing it for Christ. As a worship. It is not simply for Christ, it is a ministry which you worship him. It changes that, how you deal with that difficult boss at work. You think, I should quit. Nah, beloved. As you work, you submit. As what did to Philemon, but even perhaps the worst boss. A worse slave masters, because Paul hasn't distinguished. As a slave submits the master, as you submit to a difficult boss, as you do that difficult, boring perhaps, PowerPoint you have to prepare, just boring or a spreadsheet you have to key in and just you don't get it, it's just, I don't need this. When you submit joyfully to those things, you are worshipping Christ through it. It makes a difference. You know, if you want to have joy and contentment as you work, any work, you need to let this truth that your work is a means of worship sinking deeply in your heart. You know, it it, it will make such a difference on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and beyond and the rest of the week because your work will no longer simply be a job that you do or a career that you are pursuing Right? Your work now will become a calling. It's a calling. A calling that God has given you to worship Him through it. You see, and when we see work as a calling from God, well, first of all, we never quit work. Why would you quit the calling? But also, when we see work as a calling from God, we we, we, we find, we find even the most mundane work rewarding and fulfilling. And we'll work through even the most difficult... Remember, this is work from ministry to, 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 to school work, to, 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 to anything. we we'll find it rewarding and fulfilling. Remembering that the point of our work is to worship Christ, who also stop us from, as I said, from jumping from job to job because we are continuously envious of others. So we are trying to climb up the ladder. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting promoted. Right? Jo- Joseph was promoted. That was good for everyone, wasn't it? There's nothing wrong with working in a job you really like. Okay? I think Daniel and his friends had jobs they really like. they were really good at it, isn't it? God had blessed them and yeah, it was dangerous, but looks like they really like that st- sort of stuff. Administrators and all. Wise people. It's good to do things that you like. But that should not be your motivation. These slaves didn't all, in fact, none of them, well, actually we can be confident none of them like their job. Because God hasn't created us to be slaves of anyone. So, doing your job because you like it, it shouldn't be the motivation that drives you to do it. What should drive you to do it is the worship of Christ through your job. It is that if I do this work, I am honoring Christ. I'm worshiping Christ with it. It's an opportunity for me to die to self and to worship. As I die to self, I'm living for Christ. A Christian should never pursue climbing the corporate ladder as an end of itself. As an end in itself. I'm not saying don't climb the ladder. I'm saying we must seek to climb the ladder as a means of deeper worship of God. I wish I can unpack that truth a bit more, but I'll just let it land, right? You must, you, you must seek to climb the ladder as a means of deeper worship of God. Remembering that the point of our work is to worship Christ through it also stops us from being workaholics, devoting ourselves wholly to the work. Oh, friends, why do you struggle to switch off your computer? That's to me. (laughs) That's to me. Why do you struggle to switch off your computer? Why do you struggle to enjoy the day of God's rest? Just enjoy being in God's presence on a Sunday, but you are forever tempted to log in for work, which is coming around on Monday. Why are you tempted to do that? Why do you neglect rest, leisure, family, and the church? Because many of us believe, and to be honest, let's be honest with ourselves, many of us believe the more we work, the better our life becomes. We are looking to work to give us what God himself, what, God, what, what only God himself can give us. In fact, it's even worse than that. We are looking to work to give us what God has already given us in Christ remembering that the point of our work is to worship Christ through it, We also motivate us to grow, isn't it? In using the means of grace that grows us in faithfulness in our work. You know, when you worship God with your work, you won't want to miss the Bible study or one of the two services on Sunday because of work. It doesn't make sense, does it? What doesn't it make sense? Well, how can you worship God with your work and neglect the means that God has devised to grow you in your work? Do you get my point? For you to worship God with your work, you, 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 for you to worship God with your work, you have to know how that looks like. You have to understand what work is for. You have to understand how God wants you to be at work. Now, how are you going to grow in those things? Well, you grow that through the word. You grow that through the fellowship of the saints. You grow that through the Lord's table. You grow through all of these things that God has provided for you, which we call the means of grace. Now, if you reject the means of grace, right? If you are not prioritizing them, right? Because you are working. Well, that's foolish, because the whole point of your work is to worship God and you need to grow in worshipping God through your work and the only way you can grow in truly worshipping God in the way that honours him is by prioritising the means of grace because they are the fuel for how you worship God properly. I think the point is clear, so I won't elaborate. it. What this truth is doing is it is forcing us to face up to our delusion. It is humbling us to repent of our neglect of gathered worship. Personal corporate prayer. Beloved, it's not good enough for us to say, I'm doing God's work, I have no time to pray. I'm doing God's work, I have no time to to do Bible study. I gotta meet so and so, so today I haven't really I gotta do a discipleship chat with that person, but today I haven't had time to pray. But it's front to back. Oh, I'm going to church, but I've no time for Bible study midweek. Well, did I say church? That's for pastors. I, I'm, go- I'm going to work. I've been so busy with work this week. I couldn't come to Bible study. You have beloved, you have that front to back. That's you're deluding yourself. You need the means of grace to fuel your worship through. Is it easy what I'm asking here? I'm not asking, I'm just declaring it. What this is telling me is that you need to look at your life and get the priorities straight. Similar, sounds similar, isn't it, what we're saying about parenting? <laughs> the same thing. It's like a parent saying, I've got to spend time with my children so I can come to church. That's foolish. Because, how are you going to be effective with your children if you're not sitting under the words? doesn't work remembering that the point of our work is, 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 to, is, our worship, is to worship Christ through it, also stops us from doing any work that is sinful. That's the implication of this truth. A Christian cannot work for stonewall. Why? Why can a Christian not work for stonewall? Well, you get the point. <laughs> Because how can you claim to worship God with your work? Let's say you're a secretary for Stonewall as a Christian. How can you claim to worship God through that work as a secretary for Stonewall if the very work you're supporting is producing evil in the world? It doesn't work. You can't say you support, you're worshiping God when you're supporting an infrastructure that undermines his glory in the world. Remembering that the point of our work is to worship Christ will also lead us to depend more on Christ for our work. When you, when, when, you realize, when you take this point in, what it does is, it makes you want God to help you do your work at work. If we're going to worship Christ with our work, we want to do our work in a way that's acceptable to Him. And that's why the means of grace are important. But also, that is why... Prayer is important. Because how else do we get help from God to help us with our work? Well, we must pray, isn't it? Prayer is the key. Corporate prayer, but prayer throughout the course of our work, our private prayer. Beloved, are you doing your work with prayer? When you remember this truth, prayer will fuel everything you're doing. So, we think of somebody going to work, right? If you, if, you, if you have a secular job, you start your day with prayer as you log into the office via Zoom or as you walk into the office. Yeah. As you log into the office, this is it Microsoft Office perhaps? By this case, as, as you log into Zoom or Microsoft Teams to meet colleagues, you start that with prayer. But if you're walking in, you also do that with prayer as you commute to work. Right? You start your day with prayer. As you, Before you speak to your colleagues at work, you, you want to pray for your bosses that day. Lord, this is a big part of your work. Oh, what a joy work is in this sense. If you are, if you, whatever job God has given you. Seven to five, isn't it? Is it seven to five? Right, right, right. Seven hours times five, right? Eight hours a day, right? Times five, 40 hours. 40 hours of worship. And now you're praying for your boss every single day of that week. Lord, save John. save Michael. Touch. These are the people God has given you. Same thing for bosses. Two employees you've got. You say, I'm going to be with them today. Oh, Lord, please help me to relate to them properly. Pray for them that, Lord, today you would advance the kingdom of God in their life. Oh, what an intercessor you would be if you took this approach. So you're praying for the people you're working with. When you're interrupted by a boring colleague or a difficult colleague, you cheerfully bear with him, isn't it? You listen to him mourning about, we always have somebody at the place of work who doesn't like that place of work. There's always one. And they will come to you. Isn't it terrible we are still here, isn't it? And you are you're listening, you're listening to them. They're not gonna leave, but they're mourning, right? You're listening, it's terrible we work here, isn't it? So you listen to them. And and then you quietly pray for them that God would flood their heart with contentment. That God would use even the frustration with work to draw them to himself. When you enter that meeting, uh, which is, you know, it's going to be a difficult meeting. You're not sure how... You're presenting behalf to directors. You're not sure how they're going to respond. It's a new idea. You're nervous. How are you feeling? You're feeling like Nehemiah before Zeus. And what did Nehemiah do? He prayed to the Lord Almighty to grant him favor before God. What are you doing? You're worshiping with your work, through your work. When you're about to make a difficult phone call to a difficult customer, you first call on God, isn't it? To help you to be calm... We hope you to be loving in your tongue. And at the end of the day, as you finish all your work, what do you do? You, you, log, off, you, the, 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 you log off Zoom or perhaps you catch the tube. Life was easier back in the day for illustrations. You, I'm getting more tangled up here between Zoom and real life work, right? But you know, you, 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 you log off your Zoom. Or you decide to catch the, you, you catch the tube, right? Before you do that, you want to ensure you give thanks to God. That the Lord giveth, giveth, and giveth his grace again. And he's done it for you that week. Do you see, do you see how, 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 how we worship God? Just as an example. For, for people in different situations. Moms at home. Uh, kids at school. This is going to look different. right? But it's the same element. It's prayer being a key part of your work. We haven't even mentioned important lunchtime devotions that you want to take out for half an hour to read in, in between, to read God's word in between your work. I've not mentioned that. And if you need a good Puritan devotion, I can give you to read for half an hour. It's brilliant. The two volume set. you love that. Work we through that. That's 365 days of a year times two. There are many, work we through that. You're, you're not only praying through your work, you're being enriched. Your soul is being enriched and revitalized at lunchtime. Right? So the first truth that we have learned is that God wants us to worship Christ through our work. The question, of course, is how do we grow to become like this? How do we grow to become like this? Well, we mentioned prayer, yes. Means of grace. But if you if we were to ask Paul, Paul, tell me one thing, One single thing I should be focusing on to grow, to make my work as a ma'am at home, a stay-at-home ma'am, or make my work in the office to be prayed, to be worship-focused. What would Paul say, according to this passage? Because the answer is in this passage. We're doing Bible study, Brother Frederick, who asked that question. I think the answer is this. It's a second point. We grow to worship Christ through our work by focusing on our great eternal future with Christ. We grow to worship Christ through our work by focusing on our great eternal future with Christ. That is what Paul would say. Now, in our church at the moment, we don't know how people are getting on with their jobs. Uh, you may know them one on one, but we don't. Have, if you ask me how he's so and so doing the job, I don't know. But what I know is that we got enough people in this church, perhaps in different, in difficult situations at work. Someone is probably feeling disappointed with their work. Perhaps she's, she feels that she's being treated unfairly, or even being denied the promotion at work. Someone in this church has probably received just recently a poor review on their quarterly evaluation. Someone else perhaps has had someone recently stabbed them in the back. Or maybe they are being bullied by a colleague. People face all kinds of difficult situations. Some people are searching for jobs and that's difficult. And we think of people, uh, people, people, kids at school, we know the challenges that they are facing in their work. Or kids that are at home, being homeschooled, we know the challenges they are facing. (laughs) How can we help people in such difficult situations? How do we help them to worship Christ with their work? What would Paul say to them? How can we help them as a church to see their work as a means of worship? Well, Paul is saying we must help them to see their work through the eyes of eternity. That's what this passage is getting at. We need to encourage them to remember they have a great future. I was at the conference this week and we are talking about so many different things happening in our society. What was the conclusion? The conclusion is that more time than ever we need to preach on hell and we need to preach on heaven. We need to fix people on what is certain. What is certain in this world? There is a hell and there is a heaven to be won. That is These are uncertain times that people need to fix their eyes on what is certain. And Paul is saying here, the way we grow in worshiping Christ is precisely that. Fix your eyes on what is certain. What is certain? That you have a great blessing, a great future ahead of you. We worship Christ through our way by focusing on our guaranteed future. And that's what we see particularly in verse 23 to 25 when Paul is speaking to slaves. We'll see it with masters in a minute, but with slaves, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Paul is saying to Christian slaves, you must obey your slave masters because by doing that you are worshipping or serving Christ it. And the way you do that is to remember, knowing, literally we can translate that as knowing, remember that you already have a great future, a great inheritance, a heavenly inheritance is waiting for you. That's what Paul is saying in verse 24. Knowing, remembering that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, now, Paul here, don't get that word reward wrong. Paul is not saying obey the Lord, right, and you get your inheritance. That's not an inheritance. An inheritance is something we get with our merit. A child or descendant receives an inheritance after the parent has died. Paul explains that to us in Galatians. And they receive this not because they deserve it. They receive it by birth. It is just an act of grace to them. Remember the parable of the lost son and the, the interesting brother, right? Right? That lost son didn't deserve his inheritance, but he got it. It's grace. And in fact, he was welcomed by grace. And interestingly, Paul has already told us in chapter 1, verse 12, that all true followers already have a glorious inheritance waiting for us. That's what he's told us. Now here, what he's saying is focus on that. Focus on that. Remember that from the Lord you receive the inheritance. Remember from the Lord you have your inheritance because you are serving the Lord Christ. Paul is saying to the Colossians, you know that you are not ordinary slaves. You know you have a great eternal future with the Lord Jesus. You know that your slavery is not the last word on your life. There is a time coming when you and all true followers of Jesus will shine in the glory of Christ. And because you know you have this amazing glory with Christ, let it drive you, beloved, he says. Let it put fire in your belly as you do the slave work. week in, week out. Paul is saying to the slaves, if you want to grow in worshiping Christ with your work, you must take your eyes off living for the glory of this world, and you must start thinking and desiring your future glory with Christ. It is what will drive you to worship, to seek to worship God through your word. And this is interesting, this is also what Paul is saying in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, on the first reading, when I first read those words, it sounded to me like Paul is saying to the slaves, Watch out how you live. But as I've started these verses more and more, I've realized actually what Paul is, I think Paul is saying as we read verse 25 should be read in light of verse 24 and in light of chapter 4, verse 1. This is a sandwich that is slightly pointing us back but also has masters in mind. Paul is saying to Christian slaves, Worship Christ with your slavery because you will be vindicated. Verse 25 is meant not so much as a warning to slaves, I believe, but as a comfort to them. And the reason I say that is not only because of the assurance of verse 24 that they have an inheritance, but also because chapter 4, verse 1 immediately addresses masters to treat their slaves fairly and justly. And notice how they had to do it. They had to do it with the same qualities that God or Christ has in verse 25. Okay? They are to treat their justice fairly. Verse 25 says, The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. That's justice. And there is no partiality, that's fairness. So when we combine verse 24 and 25, In light of chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is saying to slaves, worship Christ with your slavery, no matter how bad it gets. Why? Because or for the wrongdoer, the master who has done you wrong as a slave, will be paid back for the wrong he has done to you. And you don't have to worry because there's no partiality with God. And when Paul gets to chapter 4, verse 1, he says to masters, what does he say? Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What is Paul saying? Paul says, Paul wants masters to be fair and just, as Christ himself is fair and just. But notice an interesting thing, because these masters are believers, Paul doesn't want them. It doesn't give them the consequence, any consequence of not doing it. Why? All he has is a positive incentive. And the positive incentive is that they have a heavenly future. When Paul says, "You also have a master in heaven," that's not a negative thing. they are meant to be terrified of. We must remember the opening words of chapter one, where Paul mentions heaven, doesn't it? He? Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5 says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints. How? Be- Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. These Colossian slaves have already set their hope in, on heaven. And we know the hope of heaven. What is the hope of heaven? It's Jesus himself. Jesus is coming. And so we come back to chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. We read those famous words which we must know by heart by now. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You have died with Christ. You have risen with Christ. You are sat already there with him. So set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Because that is who you are. Why do I say that? Because of verse 3. For you have already died to this world. And your life now is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, your very heaven, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, we step back and then we say, what what are we saying? We're saying, Paul is saying to the masters, in chapter 4 verse 1, the same thing he's saying to the slaves in chapter 3 verse 24 and 25. Keep your focus on the future. Paul is saying to the slaves in verse 22 to 25, Remember you have a great inheritance. So you can afford to lose at work. You can afford to lose for obeying Christ in your slavery. Your work is not a zero-sum game. Ministry is not a zero-sum game. Being a housewife is not a zero-sum game. Being a teacher is not a zero-sum game. Being a nurse is not a zero-sum game. No matter what happens, you have already won in your work. And so don't panic. Horrible boss, don't panic. Horrible colleague, don't panic. Don't feel that if you lose out at work then the bad guys have gotten away. That's the whole point of verse 25. Because the day of vindication is coming. Your boss one day will give an account. Your colleague will one day give an account. And for those who have employees, he's going to speak to them in chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, you have a master in heaven. That is where your future is. Your future is not in this world anymore. And so because your future is not in this world, you can afford to lose out in this world by being just and fair, being a good boss. Even to employees who don't deserve it. That's the force of chapter 4, verse 1. So, as we come to an end, what is the bottom line? The bottom line of what Paul has been teaching us in this Passage which I wish we had more time to go through it. You might say, Well, we've already we're on a 67. Of course, you've got time, we can go. No, no, we need to move on. But what is the bottom line? The bottom line is we worship Christ with our work by remembering our future blessing, focusing on what is certain and the blessings that we have. That's how we live, not just through work, that's how we stop giving up. That's how we persevere in anything. As a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, as a worker. The principle is the same. Focus on heaven. Focus on the great eternal future. Worship Christ with your work by focusing on eternal glory in Christ. So how should we respond? Well, three things. I said three things. You can just copy and paste the three things we said this morning. How do we respond? First, thankfulness to God. What are we thanking God for? Thank God for the privilege of work. No matter how hard it is. No matter how difficult it is. Thank God for that. Whatever work God has given you, thank God for it. And I'm not just saying that because we live in a world in which Many don't have jobs. No, I'm saying thank God for the privilege of worshiping Christ through work because the work here isn't just paid work. The work is any work we do at home, at, at school, at, at, at workplaces, in church. Thank God for it. Yes, work in the fallen world is hard, and yet it is also a glorious privilege because it's an opportunity for you to worship God through it. So, thankfulness. Secondly, repentance. Let us repent of our failure to treat work as a means to worship God. And again, I'll plagiarize myself from this morning, isn't it? You are not a good worker. Oh, we mourn about our work. I've been there, beloved. Oh, oh, I still mourn even now. Because it's this kind of work, isn't it? We mourn, don't we? We mourn about how difficult work is. I wish we had better bosses. I wish we had better employees. We mourn all the time. But we are not good workers, beloved. Yes, I know you perhaps have You have overachieved on your media assessment or you're about to overachieve when it comes in June. And yes, your employees love perhaps to work for you. They think you are a good manager. And the results show that. But as I told parents this morning, none of us are what we should be, because the standard is not another person, the standard is Christ. We do not work as the Lord Jesus Christ would do that work if He was doing our bo- He uh, was doing our work. That's the issue. So let us admit that we are not worshiping God with our work as we should, and let us cry to God to forgive us. We are constantly shaming him with the way we go about all the work he's given us. And we can be confident that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So let us repent. God will forgive you because our precious Lord Jesus has already shed his precious blood for all your sins. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to that cross. And you and I bear it no more. Finally, prayer, isn't it? We've talked about prayer, and we have to emphasize it again. Pray to God this time. Uh, Not just pray through your work, but pray to God to grow you in having that heavenly focus. Because as we said, you can only grow to worship Christ through your work if you have that eternal perspective. As we said this morning, God has not designed that we should live for Him in our strength. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. It's not DIY. It's not do it yourself. Anything, beloved, nothing in this world which we've done in our flesh will stand on that great day. No matter how good the world thinks it is. Nothing. Whatever we build with our own hands will be burned up on that day. The only thing that will last is what He has done through His work on the cross and through His work through the Holy Spirit. And that's why prayer is so critical. And praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. What a gentle and tender God He is. So quiet with us. He's just there in the background. Always enabling the work of Christ. Never taking fame for Himself. Even in the life of our Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is just there in the background. Same thing in our lives. He's just there. Bearing us up. Comforting us. We even rarely address Him directly in prayer. And yet He's so selfless. So giving of Himself the third member of the Trinity. Be thankful for the Holy Spirit. So let us seek God for His help. Let us pray to God that He would enable us to work as people who have eternity waiting for us.